This is patient care theory one, unit three, part one B, patient assessment. So we talked about primary uh, survey the last time. Let's talk about secondary survey. And we'll sort of divide this up between uh, trauma and medical, because trauma, we do a more thorough head-to-toe exam. Medical, we do a more focused exam. So, you know, in a trauma patient, have you done head-to-toe exams yet in lab? Yeah, we okay. do rapid trauma. Rapid trauma, okay. Uh, so in trauma, uh, you would palpate the pelvis for stability. You're not gonna do that for someone who's short of breath or having chest pain, right? Because that would probably be bordering on assault. So, um, uh, so um, yeah, so sometimes part of the C in the primary survey. Um, so RTS is done in severe trauma, and it's usually a very rapid um, assessment. And then you'll do a more thorough head-to-toe exam in the back of the ambulance, typically. So it's a combination of gross bleed and trauma assessment, because we're looking to see if, if there's any major injury to the head, the torso, the abdomen, the pelvis. Those are the main areas, right? Head, chest, belly, pelvis. Those are the the sections of the body where, so head injury, obviously, a neurological injury is serious and, you know, time of injury to time of intervention is critical, especially if there's an intracerebral bleed going on that can be evacuated surgically. Um, trauma to the chest can result in life-threatening exsanguination, life-threatening collapsing of the lung. Um, trauma to the abdomen can lead to life-threatening, life sorry, bleeding, and same with the pelvis. It's a very rich network of blood vessels in the pelvis, and the <coughs> pelvic fracture can result in exsanguination very rapidly. You know, closed femur fractures, they, lose, they can lose up to a liter of blood, but we don't worry about them too much. It's not, um, not typically a life threat. Um, and um, injuries to other extremities, although excruciatingly painful for the patient, uh, is not typically a life threat unless they're open fractures and there's external hemorrhage. So the objective with a rapid trauma survey is to decide whether immediate transport is, is indicated. Uh, so secondary assessment. In, um, in the real world, um, the lead paramedic and the assisting paramedic will have two separate roles. The assisting paramedic essentially uh, is doing vital signs while the lead paramedic is doing um, the exam and the history taking and so on and so forth. So um, while the lead paramedic has uh, introduced themselves and in a literally a split second has assessed airway breathing uh, circulation um, just by looking and talking at the patient, then they move on to chest auscultation, uh, Glasgow Coma Score, and we'll go over that in detail. Uh, head to toe exam history, either history of the presenting injury or history of the presenting illness. Um, ascertain what the chief complaint is in the HPI and medical history, meds and allergies. Last meal, always relevant. And um, risk factors. So uh, if it's a medical patient in particular, are they a smoker, alcohol abuse, illicit drug use? Um, are they uh, emphysemic? Are they asthmatic? Are they diabetic? Are they a cardiac patient who's on anticoagulants? So someone with a little bit of a tender belly, but the belly's not distended and their vital signs are normal, but the belly's a, a little bit tender and they're a trauma patient and they're on an anticoagulant. 
that's the patient who may not have a major intra-abdominal bleed but could potentially exsanguinate because their um, clotting factors are inhibited. Um, and the assisting paramedic will, do typi will typically do the interventions. We'll administer O2 if that's indicated, we'll initiate an IV, we'll control bleeding. Um, uh, so, uh, and I put it down there after vital signs because if it's a minor bleed, we don't worry about it immediately. Or we'll get a set of vitals first and then control the bleeding um, and immobilize. And oftentimes, you know, a bleed <coughs> will just, will have stopped by the time we get there and it just needs to be cleaned up and dressed. So this sequence of events is not absolutely written in stone, but this is a good, this single page is a good guide for the sequence events that you would take in uh, as a lead paramedic or as the assisting paramedic. Uh, yeah, is it Eli? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, PMHX and RX? Yeah, so PMHX, past medical history. Okay. So HX is always history. RX is medication. <coughs> Okay, so chest auscultation, um, when it comes to trauma patient, you might have been taught to do a four-point auscultation, uh, which is fine in a, in a rapid trauma survey. You're just getting a sense of, do they have air entry on one side, do they have air entry on the other side? Uh, but if you're not doing um, an RTS, you're, doing, you're into your secondary assessment, and you're doing chest auscultation, you should auscultate. Um, posterior is always a preferred a place to auscultate that gives you the most lung surface. So we auscultate fairly high, just below the trapezius muscles, just on either s the inside of the um, uh, scapula, uh, <coughs> number two there, and then number three just below the scapula, just um, sort of uh, uh, medial scapular line, and then four will be at the bases. Now, one of the things to remember is if you, if you auscultate a little too low, on the right side, the liver is here, so you may not hear breath sounds compared to over here. And if that's the case, you're probably just a little bit too low because the liver's in the way. Because the liver raises the hemidiaphragm on the right side. Make sense? Okay. Anteriorly, uh, the, there's six points there. Um, six points isn't bad. I usually do eight points. So I'll do, you know, one and one, two and two. And then uh, for three, I usually listen high <coughs> mid-axillary. So this is your axilla here. Anterior axillary is here, mid-axillary is here, posterior axillary is at the back of your arm. So I usually listen high mid-axillary and then low mid-axillary. So that would be three and then four, a little further down, okay? So it really should be eight spots rather than the three spots. I love when you guys are like this. But, you know, I don't want you to be totally quiet, like ask questions, but. Um, so Glasgow Coma Scale. Have you gone over the Glasgow Coma Scale in lab? No, they said that you would do it. They said I would do it? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> uh, okay, so, um, when someone has a depressed level of consciousness, we, have a quantifiable means of measuring their level of consciousness. And that's a Glasgow Coma Scale or Glasgow Coma Score. And <coughs> the Glasgow Coma Score uh, has been uh, scientifically validated. It's a very good uh, score or scale for predicting patient outcome, for example, in head injured patients. We'll talk about that when we get to 
neurological assessment near the end of the semester. Uh, but it's a, it's a predictive score. It's also, um, you know, a score that we use to measure the, to, uh, measure the patient's <coughs> neurological response initially. And then again, in the back of the ambulance, um, we're going to take a GCS again to see if they've improved neurologically. Because oftentimes when we encounter, like, for example, a head injured patient who's unconscious or has a diminished level of consciousness, they improve over time with maybe oxygenation and ventilation. And so we'll reassess the GCS. So the GCS is uh, intended to be um, for trauma patients, but we use it for all patients. We use it for diabetics, we use it for strokes, we use it for um, drug overdoses, we use it for all categories of altered mental status, but it, it was intended primarily for trauma patients, head injured patients. And when we're doing an assessment, we always choose the best score. So for example, best eye response is a four and could be as low as a one. So if their eyes don't open at all to anything, not to verbal, not to uh, pain, uh, then there'd be a one. But um, if, um, if you come upon, let's say someone called 911 because someone appears to be unconscious on a park bench and it turns out the guy's just sleeping and you arrive and uh, the guy is lying there on the bench and you say hello and he opens his eyes. You might think, well, oh, well, that's a three. His eyes were closed, but they opened when I talked to him. Um, it's not really a three, it's a four, because he was asleep, he opened his eyes um, to verbal, except that his eyes are open now because he's awake, and he does open his eyes spontaneously, you know, at this point. So his best response is really a four under that circumstance. Um, different if, uh, you know, you arrive at someone who's lying on a bench and you say, hi, sir, I'm one of the paramedics and there's no eye response. Sir, can you hear me? And then he opens his eyes and then his eyes close again and you have to shout at him a second time to get his eyes to open. That would be eyes open to verbal. Does that make sense? Um, so. Uh, eyes open to pain, so the eyes are closed. Uh, he doesn't respond to verbal, and then we elicit a pain response. And um, my go-to pain response is a sternal rub um, because it's central. Uh, you may have been taught to do a tra trapezius squeeze. Have you done sort of painful <laughs> stimulus? Okay, so trap squeeze. People often use trap squeeze. I use a sternal rub, and I'll tell you why I don't use the trap squeeze because trap squeeze. Um, uh, is not central and when you're eliciting a pain response and you're looking at the motor function you want to see if they localize and that means uh, going to the center let me explain that when it comes to motor response we'll deal with verbal response first so uh, if they open their eyes to pain then obviously they get a two and uh, uh, nobody gets a score lower than a one in any category so the minimum score for any patient would be a three right uh, verbal response, so they're oriented, so they know who they are, they know where they are, they know what day of the week it is or what month it is. Um, when I'm uh, doing a Glasgow coma score on someone who's retired, uh, I don't worry too much if they know what day of the week it is. When I'm on holidays, I have no idea what, I have no idea what day of the week it is, which is a great feeling. Um, but I can probably tell you what month it is, and that's reasonable. Um, so 
who they are, where they are, what month it is, or what day of the week it is, uh, would, would tell you that they're oriented to person, place, and time. That's how we assess orientation. Confused, uh, so they could be confused in any one of those domains. Um, usually where they're confused is uh, uh, the place and the time. You know, if you're in the back of the ambulance with them and you say, can you tell me where you are right now? And they say, I'm in, my, I'm in the hospital. And you have to tell them, no, you're in the back of an ambulance. Then that would be disoriented to place, right? So they would, they would be uh, fall into confused. They would be a four. Now, what do you do if someone's normally confused, right? They've got dementia, they've got Alzheimer's. You mark them as a four um, with a caveat. So you make a note in your ACR. <coughs> Uh, GCS of 14, patient history of dementia. Um, inappropriate responses would be something like, um, can you, sir, can you tell me where you are right now? Rockets have been flying through the river and traversing the mountains and climbing the hairy cats and knocking over the hairless cats. I'm just making this up, obviously, but, but um, uh, inappropriate means people just go off on a tangent. And you'll get this sometimes with psych patients who are having a psychotic episode or patients who are delirious from uh, other, either an underlying infection or uh, sepsis or some sort of underlying conditions that's affect affected their neurological response. Alcoholics sometimes have a, uh, what they call a hepatic encephalopathy, where toxins affect their brain function and they may have inappropriate responses. Um, so inappropriate response, let me just resume the recording there. Because um, you, will, you will get patients who will talk to you that way and uh, uh, Try to put on a straight face or a sad face, uh, not a happy face. You know, try not to grin over that because you're liable to get beaten up, uh, and that's just you know <coughs> not, not fun. Um, so inappropriate response would be they just you know clearly don't understand uh, what you're saying to them, and they're just off on a tangent. Incomprehensible sounds would be things like uh, moaning or gibberish, you know. Sir, can you hear me? That would be incomprehensible. Right? Uh, and none would be none. Nothing. Uh, okay, motor response. So again, uh, we always go with best response and then make our way down. So uh, motor response, can you squeeze my fingers? They squeeze your fingers. Now, um, squeezing your fingers is a bit of a reflex. It's not necessarily the best way to determine whether someone obeys commands. But uh, if you say something like, can you, uh, can you give me your left arm? Because you want to take a blood pressure. Can you give me your left arm? Um, and they raise their left arm, oops, <laughs> over to you. Now, you, want, you don't want to say that to someone on the autism spectrum because with autism, they tend to be more literal. So if you say, can you give me your left arm? They think you want them to detach it and actually give it to you. So uh, better to say things like, can you raise your left arm for me? Rather than, can you give me your left arm? It's incredible eh, how confusing the English language is. 
imagine someone who's foreign and learning English for the first time. Can you give me your left arm? Well, it's attached to me. I'm like crazy Canadian, you know. <laughs> it's like I'll give you uh, half of my sandwich, but not giving you my left arm. Um, so obeys commands. Um, yeah, raise a hand, raise an arm. Can you move your left hand over here? Uh, that would be appropriate. Localizes to pain. Um, your best uh, assessment, in my personal opinion, is to do a central pain. So the idea is neurologically, for them to localize the pain, they should be able to reach across the middle. And to reach across the middle, if you do a sternal rub, then they reach across to push it away with their right hand or their left hand. Right? That would be localized. And um, um, what I see medics sometimes do is if they try to elicit a pain response and they don't get a response, they continue to rub harder and longer. Well, try doing a sternal rub on yourself or having someone do it to you. It's uh, very painful. And anything beyond just an initial sternal rub to me is, could literally been interpreted as assault and battery. So go easy. I've, I've worked with partners where I've had to say, okay, enough, you know. You've been rubbing his sternum for the last 15 minutes and not kidding, but you know what I mean, I'm exaggerating. But so that's localized to pain. So we assess localized to pain first. If they don't localize the pain, then you check for withdrawal to pain. To check for withdrawal to pain, um, take a pen and squeeze a nail bed, thumb or index finger on each hand and each foot. So toes, fingers, right? Give it a good squeeze. Um, here. I'll squeeze my finger. I'll tell you when to, no, with the pen. <laughs> so go here, I'll show you. Go like this. So do that to me and I'll tell you when to stop. Keep going, keep going. Harder, 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 harder. Keep going, really? keep going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's good, yeah. So fairly <laughs> tight squeeze, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with a pen. So let's see your finger. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> gonna hurt okay oh yeah exactly <laughs> do it to me just so you can get revenge so you go like this like yeah, like yeah yeah That's, yeah yeah a little harder well, this has like a little soft thing yeah. on yeah. lucky you harder 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 harder. harder okay oh that's good <laughs> okay that's good so so what should happen so what should happen is that um, when you do a nail bed squeeze they pull away that's withdrawal, right? And you want to check it on all four limbs because we're looking for, do they have global deficits or do they have focal deficits? So if someone, for example, has had a stroke, they might pull away from the left side and from the left toe, but the right side may have no response. So they would have a focal neurological deficit on the right side. Cool? Um, so if you did a sternal rub didn't yeah. respond, would you do the four? Yes. Okay. You would do it like sequentially. Just sequentially, exactly right. So you try for a localized to pain, and if they don't localize to pain, meaning if they don't reach to the center and, and beyond to push you away, then we go to assessment of withdrawals to pain. So if you do a sternal rub and they just do this, ah, but they don't really reach across, then we're going from a step down from localized to see if they withdraw to pain. And then we do all four limbs, okay? <coughs> really important you do all four limbs. Because in head injuries, typically, if you've got an intracerebral bleed on the right side, 
you're going to have uh, motor deficits on the left side. So you might respond on the right, but not on the left, right? Because the uh, nerves cross over, and so you get contralateral uh, innervation. Okay? Um, flexion, um, sometimes also called uh, decorticate posturing. If you uh, elicit a pain response and they, they flex their arms like this with their wrists, <coughs> typically they flex like this, or they just flex like that, or inward like that. That's flexion posturing. And uh, if they don't flexion posturing, uh, further down on the GCS, they extension posturing. So they curl out like this. And sometimes you'll see patients who do that spontaneously. They're lying on the ground, they've got a diminished level of consciousness, and just they're doing this with one arm or both arms, or they're just doing this spontaneously. So they may do it spontaneously, or they may do it to uh, your neurological assessment, your elic eliciting of pain. Okay? And it may be unilateral, or it may be bilateral. So you've got to make a mental note of that. If it's unilateral, that would be a focal neurological deficit. That means that they've likely got a lesion in one side of the brain, left, left side if they're doing this, right side if they're doing this. Right. So uh, GCS is one of the most important tools in your assessment, is the most important tool for your neurological assessment. <coughs> And my advice to you would be uh, memorize this for two reasons. One, because there'll be a short answer test on this and you'll have to basically describe each and every of the 15 steps. And I would recite it on your drive home, on your drive here, on your drive home, on your drive here, and just memorize it. because It's one small piece of uh, a neurological tool that you have to commit to memory. So when you're on a call and you're dealing with someone with altered mental status, you should be able to ascertain their GCS in under five seconds. But I can tell you, I've worked with medics and I've you know, asked what's their GCS and they just look at me blankly and nothing annoys me more than a seasoned paramedic who can't figure out a GCS instantaneously. Like you should be able to work it out really quickly. So when you're when you're doing a score though, are you adding all three sections together <coughs> to get your yeah. final score? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're adding all three sections. Yeah. What did you say the difference flexion is? So flexion in response to pain or just spontaneously they flex their forearms and their wrists like this inward. And extension they extend their wrists out like that. Usually twisting their arm. First name? Taylor. Taylor. If we're like stimulating the pain to check for that response, what how, how would you do that? Like if the function and extension yeah. like if it's spontaneous and they're just doing it, right. it's like a reaction to something, right. or are they reacting to Okay. So if they're not doing it spontaneously, typically they'll do it in response to a sternal rub or a trap squeeze. So I don't do trap squeezes, uh, because trap squeezes um, if so in terms of localizes the pain, if I do a trap squeeze here and the patient reaches across with this hand, that would be localized. But oftentimes what happens if I do a trap squeeze here, rather than localizing, the patient just shrugs. And shrugging doesn't tell me anything neurologically. Right? So that's why I do a sternal rub. Um, yeah, uh, Aaron. Yes. What would be like the main, I guess, main difference neurologically with the difference between 
flexion versus extension. I mean, it's just a muscle group away, really. Yeah, it's a muscle group away, but it's a different level of function neurologically. So flexion, they also call it decorticate uh, posturing. So that's um, outer brain function. Uh, and extension is deeper brain. So usually means, um, you know, if you've got someone with an epidural hematoma where they've got a lesion uh, sort of outside the dura mater of the, of the brain, uh, you'll get a, a flexion posturing or decortica posturing. And with deeper brain injury, you get extension posturing. So, so different muscle groups, but it's uh, uh, a deeper level of injury, brain injury. that gives you uh, extension posturing. So spend some time with this. Um, by the end of the semester, you should have it memorized cold. I mean, if you have it memorized cold in a week, uh, I will be thoroughly impressed. Um, okay, so branching points. Um, when it comes to head-to-toe exams, as I said earlier, for a physical exam in a trauma patient, it's a head-to-toe exam. So you might do a rapid trauma survey, which is a combination trauma gross bleed check, but in the back of the ambulance, you're gonna do reassess and do a thorough head-to-toe exam. So examine the head properly, the back of the head, the top of the head, the, the facial bones, um, the neck, the C-spine, the anterior neck, the clavicles, the anterior chest, the lateral chest, the posterior chest, um, all four quadrants of the abdomen, uh, the pelvic, um, stability you'll measure in three planes. Did, so you said you went over head-to-toe exam, right? Yeah. And the pelvis, you learned how to measure the pelvis in three planes? Yeah. yeah. Uh, push down, push in, what was the third one? Yeah, so lift and push. Um, uh, trauma surgeons and uh, ER docs, they don't do the lift up, that's old school. Uh, what you're supposed to do is push on the pubic bone. Uh, but lift up is probably fine for the out of hospital setting, especially if the public is watching. It's, you know, they may not understand why you're pushing on the pubic bone. Uh, but in the back of the ambulance, you can do that. I would explain to the patient what you're doing so they understand that you're um, not doing something inappropriate. Um, so for trauma, you know, visually, we're looking for things like contusions, lacerations, abrasions, penetrations. Uh, I love that term, bony crepitus. Uh, bony crepitus is when you palpate a limb and you can feel the bone crunching on bone. That's bony crepitus. It's a great feeling, not for the patient, even remotely, but for you and me, it's kind of cool. And subcutaneous emphysema is when there is air in the tissues. So for example, if someone has a collapsed lung, particularly for as a result of gunshot wounds or stabbing wounds, but sometimes with just rib fractures and chest wall trauma, you get air leaking from the lungs into the subcutaneous space. And when you palpate the chest in that area where there's air leakage, it feels like Rice Krispies under the skin. Have we talked about sub-Q air? No? Okay. So when you palpate that area of the chest, it, it literally feels like um, Rice Krispies under the skin. Sometimes if people sustain a neck injury, like a laryngeal trauma, uh, fracture of the larynx here, air can escape from there and into the neck tissues and you feel the same thing, it feels like. Has anyone never not eaten um, Rice Krispies? Everyone's had Rice Krispies at some point in your life? Yeah, okay. Has anyone had oatmeal with peanut butter? Because that looks good. <laughs> yeah. Peanut butter is, 
a beautiful thing. Peanut butter and coffee, two of the you know most intensely joyful things in life, I think. Not together necessarily, but <laughs> you know, separately. Okay, so um, when you're examining the head, we're uh, examining, uh, so we're looking at the head, we're palpating the head. One of the things that we look for is the mastoid processes are behind the ears, and we look for discoloration behind the ears. That's usually a sign of um, older head trauma, like uh, trauma that's four to six hours old. Uh, and if you see mastoid, we call it mastoid bruising, but it's, it's the proper term for it is ecchymosis. And uh, ecchymosis. Who calls it seat? That's what the uh, pre-trauma hospital called it. Oh, they call it seatbelt signs? Yeah. Really, eh? Yeah. Americans, what do they know? Um, so it's for mastoid bruising? That's the term they use? No, for ecchymosis. Oh, for ecchymosis. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, so, um, so ecchymosis can happen anywhere on the body, but um, when we're looking at the head, um, one of the signs of a basilar skull fracture, and a basilar skull fracture is basically from the orbits of the eyes all the way around to the back, so anywhere down from here is considered a basilar skull fracture. You can get blood leaking into the mastoid process, which is really porous bone, and so you get mastoid bruising. Um, periorbital ecchymosis means discoloration around the eyes, and it's different from contusions or bruising around the eyes. When you get punched in the eye, you're gonna get uh, hematoma, you're gonna get redness from bleeding, um, but you're also gonna have quite a bit of swelling, right? So you'll have a swollen eye and a red eye. Ecchymosis is more a bleeding in that, that area, but from inside as opposed to from direct trauma. So, um, and uh, with head injuries, we look for autorrhea and rhinorrhea. Autorrhea is um, fluid out the ears, rhinorrhea is fluid out the nose, but specifically we're looking for um, Autorrhea and rhinorrhea means blood mixed with cerebral spinal fluid. So with a basal skull fracture, you can get CSF leaking out of the ears and the nose. And <coughs> if it drops onto a sheet, it usually forms a bullseye where you've got a dark spot in the middle and lighter stuff on the outside. It's not dotted like this, but it's just darker in the middle and um, not as dark on the outside. They call that a bullseye. And if you've got cerebral spinal fluid mixed with blood and it drops onto a sheet, you get a bullseye. Like a pillowcase or a sheet on the stretcher, you get a bullseye. That's indicative of, or suggestive of, autorrhea or rhinorrhea. If someone has um, discoloration around both eyes, we call that uh, bilateral periorbital ecchymosis. It's one of the first medical terms I ever lear learned uh, when I went um, through the program many years ago, bilateral periorbital ecchymosis. So if you ever see someone who's been punched in both eyes, you can say bilateral periorbital ecchymosis. If it's just above the eye, that would be supraorbital, or the bottom part, that would be infraorbital. Uh, okay. So we, we examine the head, we palpate the head, we're gonna palpate the top of the head, the back of the head, 
and the facial bones, right? <coughs> so you're going to feel the ridges of the eye. You're going to feel the zygoma here. You're going to feel the, the maxilla and the mandible to see if it's all intact. Right? And um, you're going to look for mastoid or periorbilicomosis, otorrhea, rhinorrhea. You're going to palpate the back of the neck. And at some point, if the patient's lying on the back, you're going to uh, turn them over on their side as a unit and examine the full spine and then lay them back down onto a spine board or a scoop stretcher, uh, depending on what's appropriate. So um, cervical spine, uh, thoracic spine, lumbar spine. We look at the neck veins to see if they're uh, visible or not visible. Now, neck veins normally are not distended. You, you might see the neck veins at the base of the neck in people normally. Um, but if the neck veins were distended up to the angle of the jaw while they're in a sitting position, that would be unusual. And neck veins distended up to the jawline in a sitting position might suggest either they've got a collapsed lung and uh, the lung is shifted and it's compressing the vena cava, which returns blood to the heart, and so blood backs up into the neck. Or they've got cardiac tamponade, meaning they've got blood or fluid surrounding the heart, and that uh, prevents the heart from taking its full uh, return of blood supply, so it gets backed up into the neck. So we look for neck veins to see if they're distended or not. Now, when people lie flat, typically the neck veins are distended. So when you're lying uh, next to someone who's naked, look at their neck veins. Make sure they're asleep. So, you know, they, <laughs> they don't look at you like, what are you staring at? You know, oh, just your neck veins. Yeah, out you go. See ya. <laughs> Paramedic loser. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm just telling you, becoming a paramedic will... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, becoming a paramedic will uh, uh, it'll do terrible things to you. Um, we just look at things and get excited about things that no one else looks at or gets excited about, and unfortunately, it's just one of them. So, uh, now the trachea is a trachea midline. So we might do just a quick palpation of the trachea at the at the sternal notch. Uh, to see if it's midline. And when would it not be midline? It would be not midline if you had a collapsed lung and the air, uh, air is collecting between the lung and the ribs and the lung is getting shifted over to uh, the other side and it shifts all the mediastinal structures, so the heart, the aorta, the major vessels. And as a consequence, the trachea gets shifted over to the side as well. So the trachea tends to shift away from a collapsed lung, also called a pneumothorax. And um, so if you had a pneumothorax on the right side, you get mediastinal <coughs> shift to the left with a tracheal shift to the left. And if you had a collapsed lung or pneumothorax on the left side, you get uh, tracheal shift to the right. right. Now, um, the reality is, that oftentimes when people have a, a pneumothorax and a tension pneumothorax, a tension pneumothorax would be when there's an actual mediastinal shift, the trachea often just feels like it's midline. So I'm not sure that it's a v terribly valuable assessment tool, but we assess it as a routine anyway, just to be sure. So the chest, um, we're going to palpate the chest, um, anterior chest, posterior chest, lateral chest. We're going to uh, palpate for to see if they wince or if there's bony crepitus or subcutaneous emphysema. 
if you want to assess someone's uh, chest symmetry, what's your first name? Kyle. Kyle, do you mind standing up and facing the class? Yep. Okay, so um, if I want to check for chest wall symmetry, we'll assume that Kyle's lying down. You put your thumbs where the ribs meet, like that, your hands like that. And when he takes a breath in, my hands should expand symmetrically, right? Not that much, obviously, but it should expand symmetrically. If he's got a collapsed lung, thanks, Kyle. If he's got a collapsed lung, one side of the chest will expand, the other one not so much. So that's chest wall symmetry. The abdomen, so um, again, you know, we, we look and we inspect in that order. Um, the abdomen, we look for contusions, lacerations, pulsatile masses, things like that. Did, did you talk about pulsatile masses in your head-to-toe exam review in the lab? Briefly. So if someone has an abdominal aortic aneurysm, meaning um, part of the aorta is ballooned out, so there's a weakened part of the artery and it becomes ballooned out, it would normally, you know, the abdominal aorta would look like this, but if it's got a weakened area, it might look like that. And because of that ballooned out area, it may present as a pulsatile mass around the umbilicus. Um, now, again, if you're lying next to someone who's naked and you look at their belly, even if they're, they got a little bit of belly fat, you'll see uh, pulsations. You'll see the aorta pulsating. Again, only when they're asleep. Like, don't tell them you're looking at their pulsating aorta because <laughs> it might be amusing or cute the first couple of times. And, you know, after 20 times, it's like, you're really creeping me out. Like, that's it. It's, oh, we're over. It's done. Um, <laughs> it's, it's over. Like, I can't even sleep without thinking that you're awake, staring creepily at my pulsating aorta. You know, that's, that's what it leads. I'm just telling you, okay? Just keeping it real for you. So uh, we look at the abdomen. Uh, is it distended? Is it rigid when you palpate it? We, we palpate in all four quadrants. Uh, and I'm assuming you went over that in lab. And we uh, palpate for um, um, rebound tenderness. Did you go over that? So rebound tenderness is where you put both hands on the side of the abdomen or on the flank and you push down fairly deep and you let go quickly. And um, when they have pain on rebound like that, it's usually suggestive of something going on uh, behind the peritoneum, which is a, a sort of a sheath that divides the organs. Um, so we check for rebound tenderness. We check the pelvis in three planes. Uh, we check all four limbs, right? So you gotta make sure you check, you know, the shoulders, the humerus, the elbow, the ulnar radius, both arms, both legs, the femur, the knee, the tib-fib or fib-tib, as I like to say, because everyone says tib-fib. It's more fun to say fib-tib. Um, and we check for pulses in all four limbs. Um, but particularly if you've got pelvic injury or um, lower extremity injuries, we want to check for, did you go over pulses in the extremities? Did you go over pedal pulses? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, pedal pulses is a good thing to practice. And a boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, it's okay to practice pedal pulses. I think it's as long as you're not doing it daily, but, um, you know, because it's just a pedal pulse. I don't know what you're saying. Pedal pulse. Oh, pedal pulse. The top of the foot. Oh, okay. Yeah, so right at the, right at the top of the foot here. 
Okay, you feel a pedal pulse. Did you go over the posterior tibialis pulse? The one, the one right behind the medial malleolus? Yeah. Didn't practice it? So uh, I would practice it. Um, practice it on uh, friends, family, not at parties. You know, I, I know I said that before, but I was just joking. Not at parties. Not at complete strangers who are wearing, you know, flip-flops or... <laughs> um, so, medical assessment. We're going to wrap up here, take a break in a second. So, medical assessment's more of a focused assessment, right? If, if, if my patient is someone who is having difficulty breathing or, and they're not traumatized, or they're having chest discomfort and it's not trauma, uh, or uh, something else is going on, uh, I'm not likely to palpate the entire body. But what I will do is I'm gonna look at the neck veins and maybe the trachea. I put plus or minus there because it may or may not be indicated. But um, we'll look at the neck veins. So patients with heart failure may have neck vein distension. Patients with cardiac tamponade, which is um, fluid between uh, the heart and uh, um, the layer surrounding the heart, um, the epicardium could have um, distended neck veins. Uh, patients with a collapsed lung could have distended neck veins. Uh, the chest would be plus or minus. So if I'm dealing with someone with chest pain, I'm going to palpate the chest just to rule out skeletal muscle cause. So if they're having chest discomfort, I would tell them, I'm going to feel your chest to let me know if that discomfort that you're experiencing, if it gets worse or it's unchanged. Um, when you palpate the chest. The abdomen, again, um, if it's abdominal pain and it's medical, then you're going to look at the abdomen and you're going to palpate the abdomen, obviously. So uh, it should be soft, it should be non-tender, it should be non-distended, and there should be no pulsatile mass, right? So, and that's, if, if, um, if someone's having abdominal pain, we want to know, is it re reproducible by palpation or not? If they're having chest pain, we want to know, is it reproducible by palpation or not? So you palpate the abdomen and you say, yes, it's provoked by palpation of the right upper quadrant or the left lower quadrant or wherever it is. We look to see if it's distended. Now, if a belly's distended, how do you know between um, distended belly from fluid versus they're just fat? Um, well, uh, um, you've got to approach it somewhat diplomatically. If, if someone's got a belly that's a little larger than normal, I might say, you know, does your abdomen feel bloated? And, uh, you know, that may or not be offensive uh, nonetheless. But uh, they might say, no, it doesn't feel bloated. I'm just fat. And, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But um, oftentimes, you can tell when there's fluid in there, like if they have liver failure or heart failure, they may have something called ascites, which is an accumulation of fluid in the belly. And it, it looks sort of glisteny and, and looks harder than normal. It's not a soft, uh, big belly. It's a more of a rigid belly. And so you'll ask about that. Um, the lower legs. So uh, we, you know, in a medical patient, you wouldn't palpate the upper leg and the lower leg, but what you would look for is swelling around the ankles, SOA, or edema in the foot, or edema even sort of migrating its way up the calf, right? right so we're looking for peripheral edema. And if you've got uh, a patient who has heart failure, uh, 
fluids tend to accumulate in the gravity dependent areas. So they get swelling of the ankles, they get swelling of the calves, and then we actually measure uh, the depth of the edema. So we press a finger in it to see if, it, if it's pitting or not. Um, we don't actually uh, quantify it typically, but they will in hospital. They might quantify it as one centimeter pitting edema. Um, and we look for surgical scars, right? So we typically ask the patient if they've had any surgeries, we look for surgical scars. And if we see a surgical scar, we ask about it. Because um, if you've got someone with abdominal pain, um, and you ask them, have you ever had any abdominal surgeries and, surgeries, and they say, yeah, I had my appendix removed when I was 11 years old, you can rule out appendicitis as a cause of the rhabdo pain, right? So, so that's helpful. Or, you know, I've had gallstones. Now, you can get gallstones more than once, or I have kidney stones. Um, so we look for surgical scars. We ask about um, surgical history. I think, stand by here for a second. Yeah, I think we'll take a break at this point and then uh, finish off this lesson after the break. So let's take a break until uh, noon, okay?